Well, greetings to you. It is a great joy for our family to be able to be with you today, uh, to be in a, a church that we uh, love so much, a church that's so familiar to us and so dear to our hearts. So thank you for having me and our family. We're excited to come together and to look at God's Word a few times today. Uh, we have before us our text is the text of uh, Song of Songs, uh, chapter 3. Uh, Song of Solomon in um, many Bibles, and if you get a really old Bible, it's the Canticles. So uh, we'll we'll turn there to chapter three and look at God's word today. Uh, I feel compelled somewhat to give a, a brief introduction to the text before I read it because it's so uh, commonly misunderstood. I want you to know what we're headed for and what our goal is and what our topic is, and uh, also to uh, we also have the unfortunate. Uh, thing before us, we're landing in the middle of, of a narrative of some things already going on. So uh, our topic then is to pursue Christ. What is involved in pursuing Christ? Our topic is reformation, awakening to turn to the Lord Jesus in our text. And uh, this is the part that's often misunderstood. In the Song of Songs, we see it as a picture of, of Christ and his church. And so the woman we're about to read about represents the church, and we're going to see how she awakens from her slumber and how she pursues her beloved, the Lord Jesus. And so in that, we'll see many encouragements for the church, many personal encouragements to awaken to the work and to pursue the right pursuits. And uh, some questions will come away from the, in the sermon are, what are you pursuing in your life? And are you pursuing the Lord Jesus? What are your loves? Who is your beloved? And where is your focus in your life? Well, look with me now to God's holy word. As we come to our reading in the Song of Songs. Chapter 3. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy and inspired and inerrant word. Chapter 3 and verse 1. Our primary text will be down to verse 4, but I'll go ahead and read the chapter. It's fairly short. Verse 1. By night on my bed I sought him whom my soul loveth. I sought him, but I found him not. I will arise now and go about the city and the streets, and in the broad ways I will seek him whom my soul loveth. I sought him, but I found him not. The watchmen that go about the city found me, to whom I said, Saw ye him whom my soul loveth? It was but a little that I passed from them, But I found him whom my soul loveth. I held him, and I would not let him go, until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her that conceived me. I charge you, O you daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and by the hinds of the field, that you stir not up, nor awake my love, till he please. Who is this that cometh out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all powders of the merchant. Behold his bed, 
which is Solomon's, threescore valiant men are about it, of the valiant of Israel. They all hold swords, being expert in war. Every man hath his sword upon his thigh because of fear in the night. King Solomon made himself a chariot of the wood of Lebanon. He made the pillars thereof of silver, the bottom thereof of gold, and covering of it of purple, the midst thereof being paved with love for the daughters of Jerusalem. Go forth, all ye daughters of Zion. And behold, King Solomon with the crown wherewith his mother crowned him in the day of his espousals and in the day of the gladness of his heart. We are thankful for the reading of God's holy word, and we pray then that the Lord's will would be revealed to us. We look to the promise in Isaiah 55, for as as the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing to fulfill this promise now in our time. Let's pray. Father, we come now weak and in need. I'm praying for the work of your Holy Spirit to shine his light upon your dear Son, the Lord Jesus. We pray now that this preaching and the hearing of your word would honor you and that you would be pleased with us through our Lord Jesus, who is the focus of our passage. We pray now in his name. Amen. Well, I want to talk to you today about a subject that means a lot to me. It's the subject of Reformation. It's a subject that is something we focus a lot of our attention upon as Reformed people. But it's a subject that we don't always tend to understand so well. I want to talk to you about the things we pursue and how to pursue the right things in our passage You see, this passage that's before us is a passage about Reformation. Something's happening here. There's a slumber, and there is an awakening, and then there is a pursuit. And so that will be our focus to make some personal applications here. Now, I mentioned already the approach to this passage. I don't want to even spend a moment's time really defending our approach to this book of the Bible. Uh, It's long been the approach of our Reformed fathers. Uh, Puritans and Covenanters alike have approached this book of the Bible to be interpreted uh, about the passion of the bride uh, for her husband, the Lord Jesus Christ, her spouse. And so there are so many applications in this book because this book stirs our soul. This book teaches us about passion, about love for one who is our beloved, about seeing all of the wonderful qualities in the one we pursue. This book causes us to turn our attention away from the world in the pursuit of worldly things to the pursuit of our beloved. And what is one thing that tends to happen among us, even who are Reformed? We take our focus off of the one who is our beloved. 
Well, we want to talk about some applications from this particular uh, chapter this morning and this afternoon. I'm going to talk about some of the things that we pursue instead. Poles tend to change over time. You know that. Uh, they change from uh, year to year, from, from age to age. But from culture to culture, they also change. But really, ultimately, in many of these polls, if we were to be able to poll everyone in the world, what are you pursuing in life, those polls would probably all be the same. Because it's a part of mankind's nature in our history to pursue particular things. You see, man often pursues wealth and power and career and family and friends, happiness, health, a long life. And none of those things are particularly bad in and of themselves. But when they become our obsession, when they become our central focus, what happens is even these good things cause us not to focus upon what we ought to focus upon. They can take our eyes away from our beloved. These things are always at the top of the list for any kind of poll since the beginning of mankind in this world. The Word of God then has so much to say about teaching us to put our priorities in the right place, about pursuing the right things in life. Because the the interesting thing is, everyone's pursuing something. Everyone's pursuing something. Everyone is, is after something. Everyone is trying to get somewhere. Everyone is trying to fill their lives with something that gives them pleasure in some particular way. And so I want us then to notice that the, the Bible gives us our priority. The Bible shows us that we ought to pursue God above all things and to pursue Christ and having no other gods before me is, is not uh, the, the first commandment by accident. It's intentional to direct our attention to our God. And so this is what we want to look at in our text. We want to uh, come away from this text, from, come away with, from this sermon with an evaluation of your own passion for the Lord Jesus. We want to come away with a questioning of the things that you pursue. What is it that you fill your life with? And are those the right things? We want to come away then by redirecting our focus to the Lord Jesus, our beloved. But we want to then inflame that passion for him. We want to see that passion to rise up and to to overtake us, to drive us forward in our daily life. And then this afternoon, to be able to do that, to be helpful for us to see the things that the Lord Jesus himself uh, pursued. And so we'll follow after those things to pursue him. So we're we're just going to build on that theme today. We're using this word a lot, to pursue. What does it mean? What does it mean to pursue something? It seems like a, a basic word, but the word means to follow, to go or proceed after in a like direction. It can mean to follow with a view to overtake something, like to catch something. But it can also be used to seek after something that you don't have or that you may never obtain. And so when we look at the the idea of pursuing in our Christian life or in our worldly life or in whatever, sometimes we pursue after things we never get. 
Interestingly, many people pursue things in this life they never obtain. There's a vanity to it because they're not pursuing the right things. And a great portion of mankind never obtains what they pursue. But the beauty of pursuing the Lord Jesus is that we obtain Christ. We come to Christ. He holds us. We are His, and He is ours. And we will obtain that which we seek. So the word kind of can be used in different ways, right? To, to chase, to follow, to try to get something you, you, you never might uh, attain. But the word is important for us to understand what's happening in our passage. And so then we'll turn to our text and look at some of these uh, particular uh, things happening in the text before us. I think one of the most grievous things in life, um, maybe you've been through this and maybe you haven't, I would assume that you have, and so I'll approach it with that particular perspective. Whenever you feel far from Christ, whenever you feel far from Christ, that is a a gut-wrenching horror to a true believer. And, And we all feel that sometimes. We all go through that that season, that period of time, and maybe you're there today. And so this is a a subject that can be helpful to us in our Christian walk. Sometimes we're in the right place. We we love the church. We love the Lord Jesus. But we wake up and we look over, and he has departed. So we want to build on what is happening in our text. Sometimes what happens is that because of our sin, something within us that we've done or what we are doing, we feel that the Lord Jesus has departed. And so our question is, how do we deal with that? How do we deal with the season of life that is before us in Song of Solomon chapter 3? How do we deal with Christ departing from us? Now, some Christians don't want to talk about that kind of thing, and they'll say, well, Jesus would never do that. But in the Reformed perspective, we are careful to note this in our confessions, and we understand the fact that there are times when the Lord Jesus feels apart from us for whatever reason. And we don't deny that. We just try to have a better understanding of why it happens. Look at our text. In verse 1, By night on my bed I sought him whom my soul loveth. I sought him, but I found him not. Now, in many ways, I do see a passage before us. We'll talk about some of the details, but I I do see a reformation happening here. There is an awakening, and we want to talk about what that means. In the text, it's revealed that the reaction of the wife, this this is what we want to focus on. What does she do when Christ has departed from her? So the debate isn't about where did Jesus go and or or has he departed? He's not here. What is her response? What is your response, child of God, when the Lord Jesus feels distant from you? How does she respond? This text is is powerful. This text is, is moving. And I'd like to suggest to you that this text reveals a proper heart toward the Lord Jesus Christ. It reveals a heart that that seeks to discover the one who has departed because he is her beloved. This text shows us the essential nature of what it's like to pursue our beloved who has departed from us in a time of surprise 
and a time of sorrow. Notice some details about the text. By night. Most commentators find that there's a significance to the fact that the Lord Jesus has departed in the night. It's possibly the imagery of the night departure has to do with trouble in the church. It's a time of trouble. It's not a a time of walking in the park when everything is wonderful, but it's a time of night. The Geneva Bible gives us this approach. It, It says the church by night, that is, in troubles, seeks Christ, but it is not heard. Now, why did Christ leave in the passages before us? We don't know. We are kept from our beloved. Why does the Lord Jesus leave us at times? And we'll, we'll look at some of that in our, our confession here in a moment. I want us to begin, first of all, though, to walk through some of the points in this text that are very important for us to gather. First of all, marriage love in the passage. There's a great love and passion between the husband and the wife. You can see this as you move through this chapter. We're just looking at this one little chapter of the book. But there is great passion between the, the church and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's important for us to see then that we ought to have as a church a great passion for the Lord Jesus. And sometimes we don't. Sometimes our attention is elsewhere. We need to understand the idea then that a passionate love between the Lord Jesus and his church doesn't happen by accident. It happens by pursuit. It happens through the means of grace. It happens through the the lawful means that are given to us to pursue the Lord Jesus. Love grows over time. Now, now love is is not what we see in the movies in our time. Uh, Love is something that we we decide to do. It's, It's an intentional thing. But love can be inflamed over time. And it would not be a, a, an improper thing to say that we are, are, are closer to Christ after a lifetime of a passionate love toward him. We grow closer to him. And so the difficult tests come in our passage and the questions come to us. How do we respond when it seems that the one we love so much has departed from us? Passion can rise and fall. Sometimes the church grows cold, and sometimes the church takes its eyes off of her beloved. The departure of Christ, I think it's important for us to realize, we want to view this through the lens of our theology. Is Christ departing from me for a season because he loves me less? Absolutely not. And yet what happens in this moment of, of frenzy, of searching, of, of confusion? The first thought that sometimes enters into our, our mind is that, well, Christ has departed from me. He doesn't love me anymore. And those thoughts come to our mind because of a, of a lack of faith and training on our part. We ought to know Christ better than this. Our first expectation ought not to be that that Christ has lost his love for us or that there's some flaw in the Lord Jesus. You see, if if we are properly prepared for this moment in time, we come to it with wisdom and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. It's the importance of a confession. We know Christ. 
And so in that moment of time, for whatever reason, we're going to talk about the reasons. When the Lord Jesus departs from us for a season, our thoughts go to mature thoughts, stable thoughts, faithful thoughts. And what happens, as we'll see in our confession, is that at times when the Lord Jesus departs, the time he's away from us ends up strengthening us, not causing us to question and to grow weaker. And so where are you in that process? I have been all over the place here. But where are you in that process? If this moment came into your life, would it be a time of strengthening your faith? Or would the departure of Christ be a time of panic and chaos and a loss of faith? Questioning God, anger, confusion. We all have to go through this season. We go through the season with instruction from God's holy word. Look what happens in our text. The second observation is that Christ's departure can be due to my neglect of spiritual things, the neglect of duties. Verse uh, uh, verse 1 says uh, that I sought him whom my soul loveth, but I found him not. One of the things you read this passage over and over, it's, it's, it's a narrative, but one of the beautiful things about it is you can really sense panic. You get a sense of searching frantically for her beloved, and I, I find refreshment here. I find that it's not an out-of-control panic, but it is a bit of a, a stirring up of the soul. That's very encouraging to read because I don't want to be the Christian who doesn't notice Christ's departure. We dare not be the church that has no knowledge that Christ has left many years ago. And yet this is the case in the world in which we live. Many Christians pursue Christ. They have no knowledge of him at all. Many churches have the name of Christ in their name and have no knowledge of Christ or the gospel at all. And so we don't want to be that. And so I appreciate, I appreciate the sense of panic that is in these passages before us. It, it ought to be something that causes us to awaken, to pursue the Lord Jesus. So let's talk about why Christ has departed in the passage that's before us. Now, we don't know. And let's talk about some opinions on what's happening. Here in our text, something has happened. Uh, What has happened to the wife? Something has distracted her. She's in the bed, and she awakens. She's distracted by something. For some reason, her focus was elsewhere. Maybe she had taken her eyes off of her beloved. Maybe she's lazy in the text. A couple of approaches. We could say, well, uh, you know, this is is imagery here, uh, and this is a bed, so we're talking about this is a picture of passion. Well, but it also could be a picture of slothfulness. I'm fascinated by the fact that many of our fathers have taken that second approach. Matthew Henry says, it was by night on her bed, it was late and a lazy seeking. So so Matthew Henry takes the approach, there's something wrong here as we begin this chapter. He says, her understanding was clouded. It was by night in the dark. Her affections were chilled. It was on her bed half asleep. The wise virgins slumbered in the absence of the bridegroom. 
So one of the approaches that we take here, in which I, I tend to take this approach, I think this is the best approach, there's something wrong. There's a need for reformation. There's a need to be awakened. John Gill takes the same approach. He says, I sought him, but I found him not, because she sought him not arightly, not timely, not fervently and diligently, nor in a proper place, but in her closet by prayer, reading and meditation, nor in public ordinances. She afterwards did, which is a key point to the passage, but now she's on her bed. So what's happening in this reformation in the passage is she's waking up from a slumber, maybe not doing what she should do, but the rest of the chapter is a beautiful picture of reformation, chasing after the Lord Jesus, her true beloved. So our application then is is we're not talking about an apostate church in chapter 3. We're not talking about a church that has no knowledge of her beloved. This is a true church. These are true Christians we're talking about in this picture in our chapter. What happens near the middle? She finds her beloved. So this is someone who's in Christ. This is the true church. This is the church that arises for reformation to seek the Lord Jesus now, one of the most, maybe the most famous commentary on Song of Solomon in, in our circles is James Durham. Durham says, her being on her bed is not taken here as implying nearness with him, but a laziness of frame on her spirit, opposite to activeness and diligence. This is her case, wanting Christ, yet lying too still, as contented some way in that condition, which is a form of religion though it cannot continue so with believers. It will turn heavy and perplexing at last to them as it doth here in the bride. And that's a beautiful point to make because not only is the bride noticing that Christ has left her, she is a true believer, she's a true church, her response shows us that she desires to be reunited to the one who is her beloved. I am moved by this. I find encouragement here. There are, uh, I feel in my own heart, I, I know that I, I am a, a true believer. I love the Lord Jesus, but I grow cold. And I wake up out of my slumber and wonder, why, well, how did I get here? What do I do now? But sometimes when we wake, when we awaken from our slumber, well, it might be easier just to go back to sleep. It's really cold outside. It's so warm here in the bed. It's so comfortable. You see, to pursue Christ, to get out of the bed, involves that we do hard things. Reformation is hard. There's no such thing as a gentle reformation. There's no such thing as a a reformation that doesn't move us or change us in some ways that to cause us great turmoil in this world. Reformation involves work. And the more we minimize that, the more we, we try to be reformed while, li- while lying in the bed is, is not the approach that we want to take to the Lord Jesus and our passion for him. What our approach is, is to do as this woman does in the text. She arises and throws the blanket away and she begins to run throughout the streets to find the Lord Jesus because she's so passionately in love with him. And she is so deeply in despair at her own slothfulness. 
There's a recovery. There is a reformation that is real. There is a, there is a flame that's burning in our passage, our passage before us. It's real. And it's work. It's hard for us. But we must be a church who is about the business of running through the streets looking for the Lord Jesus when he is apart from us. So uh, there's something happening in our passage. She's done something wrong. It's repaired. And I love that picture uh, of reformation that we see. And so this is our main approach and our primary observation to to make our applications from the text. Uh, I don't want to lose sight of the fact that generally our reformation involves some wrong on our part. Now, it's also possible in our text that maybe the, the, the bride has done nothing wrong. I think that's also a valid interpretation. We, we, are, we are guessing somewhat of her slothfulness. I think that's the right approach. We want to be careful with the text. We are not told. We're given the impression that she's done something wrong. Let's look to our confession. You'll see this actually in um, your worship order. Because I think that this is our proper approach to our passage before us from our Confession of Faith on Providence. We acknowledge here in section 5 of our confession of this chapter that sometimes the Lord Jesus departs from us for reasons we haven't really done anything wrong. And sometimes we have. So let's take that approach then. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts. And we were given some reasons to chastise them for their former sins. So we've done something wrong there. Or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their own hearts. And maybe the time of testing is to draw out our sinfulness of things we haven't done yet, things that haven't happened yet, but the Lord Jesus puts this test before us that they may be humbled. I find this passage to be incredibly humbling. And that's why it's probably a lot easier for many Christians just to take a completely different approach. It's just, just about a, a husband and a wife. You know, I don't want to, we don't want to get too far into my own spiritual desertion of the Lord Jesus or my needs. It's much easier to gloss over that and to take this book in a different direction so that I don't have to search too hard to see my own sin. Next, then, to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself. And that can happen in a time of obedience. That can happen in a time when I'm strong. And uh, So these, these are things that can happen in different times in life, different seasons. To make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for sundry other uh, just and holy ends. We see this often in God's Word. The Psalms talk about this a lot. David gives us a beautiful uh, lesson in, 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 in going through his times of, 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 of perceived abandonment, the times when he felt alone. And you can see this in many of the Psalms uh, throughout. I'll just mention a few. In Psalm 10, we, we see the question, Why standest thou afar off, O Lord? And why hidest thou thyself in times of trouble? See, that fits perfectly with what we believe is happening in our passage before us. How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord? 
Psalm 13, forever? How long will thou hide thy face from me? And how long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord my God, and lighten mine eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. And so sometimes this is our cry, that, that we just feel abandoned and we don't know why. The Psalms help us here. Our theology helps us here. Our confession helps us here. The greater context of God's word and the ministry of the Lord Jesus as prophet, priest, and king that we'll look at this afternoon, it helps us here. We know his work, and we know that he will not abandon us. So there is a sense of confusion in our passage that we want to acknowledge because we don't always know. And so that's our third observation on this particular text is that the church doesn't always know why Christ has withdrawn. But our response should be the same. Our response of wisdom and maturity is that we do not feel that the Lord has abandoned us. We know that he is about his work. But the the text does kind of give the impression that the church has arisen from sleeping, from a time of weakness, maybe a time of blindness. So we, we do want to to talk about that in our text. Notice there's no anger toward God in the time of silence from heaven. There's no blaming God. There's, there's no waywardness in our text before us. This, I love about this text is that immediately upon noticing that Christ has gone, she's running in the streets. And may that be the response of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in our day when he has departed from us for a season that we are immediately pursuing him through word, sacrament, and prayer. Always and never ceasing. There's no time of slothfulness. There's no time of abandoning the Lord Jesus. We are chasing after him through the lawful means. Now, I want to... Share personally, uh, growing up in the church as an Arminian, this is a strange passage. I never interpreted the passage this way. But as an Arminian, you see, I always felt that I was bound to the Lord Jesus because I was better than other people. I actually felt that. I did feel like I, I was smarter. I grasped the Lord Jesus when other people didn't. Because it's a prideful, sinful doctrine, really, to fill our hearts with thinking that somehow we've achieved this beloved relationship with the Lord Jesus. And so everything in that situation has to be good and right. You don't know how to to deal with the Lord Jesus departing from you when you're the one holding on to him. When your entire theology revolves around the the fact that it's, it's you who's doing the work, then it is a truly tragic thing for a time of spiritual silence. And so we want to, to, to talk about how the, the, the fact that we have a confession, we have a solid faith and true faith, then that helps us then to see that it is the Lord Jesus who is clinging to us. And our pursuit of him is only because he's filling us with the desire to pursue him. My pursuit of him is not because I'm better than you or smarter or I know more theology or I've read more books. My pursuit of Christ is because I was so unworthy that he had to change my heart to get me to pursue him. And that's humbling. 
The pursuit of Christ in our passage is humbling. It's moving. Are you comfortable today, child of God, with not knowing what Christ is doing? You see, you're not comfortable with that in certain theological traditions. But from a Reformed perspective, we love and know that there are things we cannot pry into in the mind of our God. And we step back and we honor that. And we're good with it. Not all theological traditions can do that. Not all Christians can do that. And so what they do, instead of having there be things that we cannot approach in the throne room of God, things we'll never know and don't want to know, what many theological traditions do is they just create an entirely different God. A God in a box. A God who does what I want him to do. A God who's really easy to understand. A God who always reacts in the same way. A God who, go, who always does things exactly as we want him to because it makes me comfortable. And they'll follow that God their whole life. And woe unto the Christian who arrives at the last day to discover that that's not the way God is at all. So it's a difficult thing for us really then to, to not understand to not, to not know what our Lord is doing. And we'll look at a little bit more of that this afternoon. Another observation here on we don't know what Christ is doing, Christ withdrawing from us, and what is the Lord doing. The very idea that Christ is hard to find is actually a beautiful reflection of certain ages of the church. Now, for here, as I've already mentioned, I see the Reformation here. I see uh, Luther and others, they awaken from their slumber. They've lost the gospel. And Christ isn't here in the church. What are we doing? And so we see then the reformers, they begin to run through the streets to try to find the truth of the gospel. And they begin to search frantically. But they use the lawful means. How does Luther discover uh, Christ in our historical lessons? He discovers it by studying through God's Word. And he finds the Lord Jesus through lawful means. He finds it as he's running through the streets uh, in, our, in our imagery here. Uh, Luther, Luther runs into Wycliffe and, and Huss. And Luther runs into the leaders of the church who direct him in the right path. Some of the early church fathers, the gospel was always there. It just got lost for a long time in the Roman Catholic Church. And so Luther himself, using Scripture, he finds the Lord Jesus. His passion is inflamed. And the Reformation begins a beautiful era of the church where we rediscovered Christ. And we hold fast to him and will not let him go. How do we hold fast to the Christ we found? With our confession, with our faith, we, we dare not lose him again. And we don't want to find ourselves back into that time of the church when the Lord Jesus was lost in idolatry and wickedness. We don't want to be there again. We hold fast to him. The Protestant church found Christ and they will not let him go. Or we wish. But often the Protestant churches in our time have also now completely abandoned the Lord Jesus doctrinally and the gospel is lost again. And many churches. The lesson here for us is to hold fast to the one who is our beloved, that we would not lose him again. We don't want to go back through that season. Uh, 
Matthew Henry uh, gives another observation here. He actually takes it back a little further, and he says it was hard for the Old Testament church to find Christ in the ceremonial law and the types and the figures which were then of good things to come. Long was the consolation of Israel looked for before it came. Now, here's, here's an application to our passage. The watchman of that church gave little assistance to those who inquired after him. So when you found the watchman in the street, which you're going to see, we're coming to the point to, to notice that that's speaking about our elders in the church, those who lead us and guide us. Whenever the, the folks in Christ's time in the church found the leaders of the church, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they didn't direct them to Christ. Matthew Henry says, But at length Simeon had him in his arms who his soul loved. It is applicable to the case of particular believers who often walk in darkness a great while. But at even even time it shall be light, and those that seek Christ to the end shall find him at length. There's our, our hope in the passage. When we seek Christ, we find him. He is found. And we are bound to him. Christian, then let uh, not the time of silence from heaven be a, a time of disheartening and and depression for you. But but realize what's happening because you know God's word and you know your confession. Then seek to find out why the Lord has departed from you for a season. And if he has departed from you for a season, then dive head first into the means of grace to find him again. You see, when a time of silence doesn't drive us away from our beloved. The time of silence means that we're running in the streets to find him. There's an inflaming of our passion that we may be with the one we love. It doesn't always work that way. Sometimes coldness, when Christ departs, we just keep on that path. And sometimes we find ourselves cold to heaven for years. Sometimes a lifetime because we've, we've never experienced that, that passion that's in our, our text. Remember, this is chapter 3 of Song, Song of Solomon. There's a lot of passion in this book so far leading us up to this chapter. Love is what drives the church to pursue Christ. That is our fourth observation in the text when we realize that Christ has departed from us, we repent of sin and we seek reformation. We know the right path. We get on it. We move. And we desire to be with the one who has departed from us through our love. When we love Christ, then we will pursue him. She rises from her bed in our passage, not out of curiosity or fear or, or anger, but she, she rises truly longing for his presence. That, that initial panic of that he's departed is a troubling thing. And I think that that's something that we ought to notice because how many times in the world around us has Christ departed and no one noticed? How many times is Christ away from us? And it was years before we even noticed. A true Christian, this can happen to a true Christian. Spiritual blindness, spiritual darkness, a lack of the means of grace, sometimes not being under gospel preaching, being apart from the church. That's really popular in our time. Christians are so holy, they don't need the church anymore. 
And they go off on their own and they don't realize after years and years and years, I, I thought I was being more holy than everyone else. But all of a sudden, I'm spiritually cold because you've departed from the, the beloved. You've departed from the, what Christ loves. Christ doesn't love independency and aloneness. The Lord Jesus loves his church. And though it be imperfect, though it be flawed, we dare not leave it. And so it's just interesting to see how this comes out in, in many people's lives in the real application of our, our, our text that's before us. But when I notice that Christ has departed, what will I do? Will I pursue after the Lord Jesus? Do I pursue after the Lord Jesus out of anger? How dare you leave me? Sometimes we might. Or do we pursue after the Lord Jesus because I can't exist apart from him? I must pursue him. What is Christ's expectation of you in the time of silence from heaven? Would you not expect that that song of, of songs, chapter 3, is what Christ expects of you in a time of spiritual silence? I would expect that this is what the Lord Jesus wants of me. Because of my love for him, I will pursue him at all costs. Because... I love him. Oh, sometimes the church becomes angry when Christ departs for financial reasons or, or the church is getting small. We've got to grow. And, and, the, and strange things begin to happen as people think they're pursuing Christ when they really aren't. Another application uh, that is here in our love for Christ is, is to ask the question, are you wholeheartedly in love with Christ? Now, many Christians are fine with loving Christ, but it's a lot easier to do it half-heartedly than wholeheartedly. That's a lot. Of, it's actually kind of easy to love something half-heartedly. It doesn't require a lot of effort from us, and we get to love a bunch of different things at the same time. It, it's actually easy. But the Scriptures call us to a wholehearted love of the Lord Jesus. This is, is one of... Uh, this is a hard thing I'm about to tell you because I, I'm challenging you here. I, I'm, I'm asking you if you love Christ, which is a really weird question to ask. Do you love Christ? Because why wouldn't you love Christ? But what I must do in preaching is I must put before you the challenge. True gospel preaching wants you to be offended at that question. I want you to realize that there's a problem with your love for Christ. I want to stir you up. And I want you to desire the Lord Jesus in a, in a passionate and wonderful way that we see before us in our text. But a half-hearted love is much easier. A half-hearted love of Christ produces a half-hearted pursuit. And so the means of grace are great when I can get them or I'm in the mood. But a wholehearted pursuit of Christ is inflamed by and obsessed with the means of grace. And that is the approach. James chapter 1 and verse 8 says, A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. A double-minded church then is unstable. A double-minded pursuit is unstable. Psalm 12, with flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. 
Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. We must notice then that rising from the bed involves strength and determination and drive, something that we don't always have when we're tired or distracted. Or worldly. It's hard to be driven by our beloved when we've got lots of beloveds. It's hard to be driven to the Lord Jesus and and passionately inflamed to find him when he's left from us. If I've got lots of other things to do. Or my heart is filled in many other ways. Maybe I'll pursue Christ next week. I'm so busy this week. You see, when Christ is our proper pursuit, then he is above all other things. And that's the message of the passage that's before us. Matthew Henry, I'm going to him a lot, but he says here also, those that would seek Christ, so ask to find him, that one must lose no time. I will rise out of my warm bed and go out into the cold, dark night in quest of my beloved. That's our passion for the one who has lost Christ for the moment. It involves doing difficult things and going into difficult places and and shining the light of the gospel and God's word into those dark corners of the heart that are uncomfortable to talk about, the things we don't want to acknowledge, the things we don't want anyone else to know about. They're exposed and driven away so that our heart can be inflamed in the right way and toward the right thing. A fifth observation from our passage, we've already, we've already talked somewhat about it, but I want to acknowledge the fact that nothing keeps the wife from her husband in the text. And I love this about the way the church should be, that there is nothing in this world that can stand in the way of a church pursuing the Lord Jesus. And I want to be that Christian. I want to be the Christian where you better not get in my way as I pursue the Lord Jesus because I will go through you to get to my beloved. And that gives us encouragement in times of suffering, in times of sorrow. There is no philosophy. There is no atheism. There is no enemy. There is no wicked king. There is no Congress. There is no nation that can stand in the way of a church pursuing the Lord Jesus. We will not allow anything to get in the way. That's encouraging to me. I love this passage because of the, of the word that keeps coming to my mind in preparing the sermon, the relentless pursuit. Nothing gets in the way. Is, are we here? Is this the church today? Where are we and what must we do is before us. And it is, it's a very encouraging thing. One of the things that Going back to the Reformation. But I love the way that the Reformation, it, it builds over time. You, you get this picture, of, and I know there were other people involved, but you get always have this picture that Luther is standing alone against the world. And there's the truth to that. But what happens over time as, as the things start to roll forward, history is a beautiful left lesson of the Reformation grows into the whole world, all these beautiful churches sprouting up as the Lord Jesus is rediscovered. You see, Reformation, it it inflames, it burns in a good way, and, and it covers the world. 
And, and we are a part of that. We don't, we don't want to have a, a cold reformation that's only about, you know, we were reformed back then and we're not now. But the Reformation is always happening. And there's always an, an inflamed movement that nothing can get in our way. And I, I'm afraid that my application here is that many things get in the way of the church today in being reformed. Reformation involves casting away idolatry. Reformation involves casting away worldliness. And yet, what does a church do today? You can't stop getting enough of the world. In fact, the churches pride themselves today because they're they, they've, cons- they've consumed so much of the world that they, and they try to make that reformed. And there's a, there's a lot of confusion in how we pursue the Lord Jesus. And so I want to make this next point, and it's a sixth point. It comes from verse 2, that the church pursues Christ in the place he will be. That's what we see in verse 2. I will rise now. And I will go about the city in the streets and in the broad ways. I will seek him whom my soul loveth. I don't think this is some kind of crazy out of control search because she finds him. You see, the church is pursuing Christ here in the places he will be found. And that is so hard for reformed people to grasp in our time. She knows where to look. She knows where to run. She knows where to search. It's not an out-of-control thing in our text. She's looking in a particular place because she knows her beloved. And woe to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ today who will seek reformation in places that Christ would never go. Many well-meaning Christians have so taken their eyes off of Christ that they, they think they're doing the right thing. They'll put religion on something that looks good and and it smells good and it it looks Christ-like and they'll fill their lives with it. And we're at a time of the year when this is about to happen. What's the the, the thing that's this time of the year? right? Not Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving's a good thing. But people want to pursue Christ through a a man-made holy day, an idolatrous day. And they think that somehow they're closer to Jesus at this time of year. It's so warm and fuzzy, you wouldn't believe how close I am to Christ. But Christ isn't there. You can't pursue Christ in a way that Christ hasn't authorized. You can't pursue Christ in in a way that, that isn't meant to reveal Christ. Now, a strange thing happens in, in, in Christmas and Easter, for example. Some people feel a cultural desire to go to church. Maybe they actually go to church and they hear the gospel. That's, that, that's a good thing. And maybe, maybe it was a, a, an unlawful thing that spurned them. But we don't want to be the church that would say we will be, do a sinful thing in order that good things might come of it. The best approach is to abandon all idolatry and man-made holy days, pursue the Sabbath, and preach the gospel. And then people will come to church and hear the gospel because Christ is in that. That's lawful. That's the place in our text where she runs. She goes to the place where Christ will be. And so by way of our analogy, the Lord Jesus is, is here in the lawful means. But, but for unlawful things like a, a holy day, that's some alley over on the side out of town. Why would I go there to look for Jesus? The beloved doesn't go there. She goes to the places where she knows he'll be. 
And that's where she finds him. And so that's my encouragement to you, that when we rise up to seek reformation, let's go to the places where we will find the Lord Jesus in the lawful means of grace, in the Ten Commandments, in our confession, in catechism, in truthfulness, not in things built upon a lie. Are pursuing Christ lawfully, though, let's acknowledge sometimes when we pursue Christ lawfully, what happens? We may not find him for a while. We, I love that this is in the larger catechism. Question 175 asks, what is the duty of Christians after they've received the sacrament of the Lord's Supper? Sometimes we don't perceive Christ is there. What do we do? And here is the beauty of the pastoral nature of the larger catechism. It says to us here that uh, if uh, they find no present benefit, so doing the lawful thing, more exactly to review their preparation to and carriage at the sacrament, maybe I've actually done something wrong, in both which, if they can approve themselves to God in their own consciousness, our own consciences, they are to wait for the fruit of it in due time. Song of Songs 3. But if they see that they have failed in either, they are to be humbled and to attend upon it afterwards with more care and diligence. When you pursue after the Lord Jesus through the lawful means, it may not immediately seem to be effectual. Keep pursuing. Keep pursuing. But don't go to the unlawful means. The bride is looking in the right place, and so must we. So must the church in our time look to the places where Christ will be and abandon all else as you search for your beloved. I've already mentioned the seventh principle, so I won't spend a lot of time there, and uh, my time is coming to a close. But I do want to acknowledge that the officers of the church are here in our passage. In verse 3, the watchmen that go about the city, they found me, and whom I said, saw ye him whom my soul loveth. Now the watchman here is not much of a stretch. We find in the Old Testament in several places where gospel ministers are referenced as the watchmen upon the wall who direct the people of God. In John Brown's self-interpreting Bible, faithful ministers who with care and labor inspect the souls of men were often directed to speak pointedly in my case, which encouraged me to open it to them in familiar conversation and beg their assistance in furthering my conversation and search for Christ. You see, what happens in the text? They found her. So she's in the right place where Christ will be, and the gospel ministers find her. And I would imagine, not reading too much into the text, I believe that they directed her in the right direction to where she could find the Lord Jesus. James Durham says, These watchmen found her, that is, as we conceive, by their doctrine. They spoke to her condition, and by their searching and particular application, made the two-edged sword of the Lord to reach her, which shows the efficacy of the word when rightly managed. You see, if you want to pursue the Lord Jesus, your beloved, you will do it in the right place and you will do it through the right means and then you will find Christ. 
A couple of other points that we don't have time to cover, but as you pursue this particular passage, notice that time had to pass in verse 4. Sometimes time has to pass before the season is over. Notice also the ninth point of our passage. The church does actually find Christ, and she labors to hold Him. What's one of the ways that we hold Him? I think I mentioned it earlier. We hold to Christ through our confession, through our our diligence in keeping and treasuring the Word of God. A tenth observation on our passage is that the church that finds Christ wants the whole world to know. So we're going to talk a little bit about that this afternoon as she begins to boast about the beauty of her bride. And then eleventhly, the church that finds Christ is obsessed with pleasing Christ. So there are all kinds of beautiful lessons in this uh, chapter. And I pray that as you pursue the Lord Jesus passionately with knowledge, with steadfast resolve, that you will make progress in the pursuit of the Lord Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31 says, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. And Colossians 3.17, Whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. And the beauty of this then is that we can pursue Christ in a, a pile of laundry. We can pursue Christ in whatever it is we do in this world. Because all of those things can bring glory to the Lord Jesus. All of life is a pursuit of Christ. When we pursue Him, we know where to look. He is in the lawful means. But that blessing extends out then, and we'll look a little bit more at this this afternoon, that I'm able then in my job and whatever it is that I do in this world to bring glory to Christ because I'm properly pursuing Him. So the sermon today is a call to measure your pursuit. The sermon today is to ask, what are you chasing after in life? It's a call to, to measure how diligently you are pursuing Him. Is it, is it with a whole heart or is it half-hearted? Our hearts have the taint of sin, so we need to always be measuring our reformation. Now, the opposite of pursuing Christ is pursuing death. There really aren't a whole lot of options. There's one or the other. He that pursueth evil pursueth it to his own death, Psalm 11 and verse 1. My friend, today, if you are apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, Song of Songs 3 describes the passion that you ought to have toward your Creator, your God. And the Scriptures call you in the hearing today to submit to Christ, to hear, to obey, to repent of sin. And the only way of salvation and eternal life is found in the Lord Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. He is the pursuit of all men, should be. But in our fallen world, it's not the case. May you rise to pursue the Lord Jesus. May you do it in the lawful means. Hear now the word of the living God. I pray that this would be an encouragement to you as an individual, but also to the church as a whole. May all churches be pursuing Christ lawfully, diligently, passionately, but with knowledge and a zeal that's directed through the means of grace.
Would you stand with me as we pray? Father in heaven, grant that we might love Christ above all things on earth, that our our passion might be pictured here in our passage before us, and that we, like the woman in chapter 3, that we would be a people who are always passionately pursuing after the Lord Jesus in all that we do. And may the church be pictured here as a, a church that will run through all enemies and obstacles to achieve the Lord Jesus. We come now to pray these things in his name. Amen. Let's take up our Psalters.